If you need your fix of European football, you've come to the right place. This is On the Continent. I'm Dotton Adibayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Lars Sivotten. On today's show, we look back over a chaotic week in the Champions League with goals galore. And we wonder why Marseille has fallen so far. And there's a cracking game in Germany this weekend. What a week in the Champions League. The Nigerian football fans' favourite song is All we are asking is give us a goal. (laughs) Um, Well, where should we start with all these goals? Goal feasts. There was more than one given. Oh, indeed, indeed, indeed. Now, all the Nigerian fans are asking is for Nigeria to give them just one goal. Right, right. But this week, how many goals were there? 58. Over two nights. What... uh, advertisement for the Champions League last year. Yeah, no, it was, it was good fun. Um, not if you're one of those oddballs who likes a good defensive, you know, encounter. There was a, <laughs> you, do, you do wonder a little bit when you see sort of, when you see five and six uh, goal score lines here and there. But no, it was tremendous. Tremendous. I did, I think the way things devolved in Shakhtar in particular, because it was the first game of the of the Champions League match day, as they say, and you're looking at that thinking, that, that could be an interesting one. You know, Gladbach are looking pretty good under Marco Rosa, Shakhtar beat Real Madrid, they're quite tasty. And then immediately they just sort of run away with it. It was very strange. Yeah, I do wonder, Lars, if with the, the, the Shakhtar Mönchengladbach thing, we have something particular in that Mönchengladbach are so paranoid at giving up goals because they gave up two late goals in league games against Union Berlin and Wolfsburg and stoppage time goals past the 90 minute mark goals against Inter and Real Madrid and if they hadn't they'd have been top of the group so what's your reaction to that it's got to be let's polish them off by half time you know we can, we we can't be we can't be doing with this again. Even if they did close out quite well against uh, IB Leipzig in the in the league last weekend, I, I kind of feel that, that this has been coming for for Borussia Mönchengladbach a proper thrashing. Now I don't think this is necessarily symptomatic of what's happening in the Champions League at the moment, which I guess we'll talk about in a minute. But with Mönchengladbach, and you, you pointed out quite rightly, Lars, that, that they are such an exciting team to watch. I think there's so much more potential untapped there but the front players they have uh, as, as something else they're, they're quite something player and, and Tirama are slightly different but I mean Tirama especially is one of those you look at and say I don't fully understand why he's not in the rumour mill every single week over mm-hmm. here in England just yet because he has all the qualities that English clubs uh, like to look at and sort of exciting continental forwards in that he's that's just both big and quite strong but he's also really rapid and he's just you can just see him super smart yeah you can see him really having a great time in the Premier League at some point but and also but I think I think Marco Rosa as well just as a coach is someone who will be in demand going forward the job he's done at Gladbach is is quite something you'd imagine him being in the running for for the Dortmund job next summer possibly that sort of thing it's not Poss- just about results is it it's it's about identity and yeah. the sort of football they play. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think moving on to the goals issue, I have been thinking about this a lot because it, it's interesting to me. We've seen in England there's been a higher goal um, scoring average than usual. And I, I do believe it's been higher than usual in Italy as well. But it kind of hasn't been a lot higher than usual in Spain. Mm. And I think it's r- roughly the same in, in Germany, if I'm not quite mistaken. So, so, so we're not seeing a uniform sort of 
pandemic sort of no people in the stadium effect across the board. Although which is Bayern Munich, Bayern Munich have been scoring all season, have they? In, that's just another year in the Bundesliga, well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, if you like. But <laughs> you, you wouldn't be surprised to see them beat um, any team six-two. Although two, two goals compared uh, to Borussia um, Gladbach, who kept a clean sheet. Mm. But arguably the Bayern game was the better game. Well, I, I think or? because it was, I, I agree with you, Don, because it was a bit more to and fro. I mean, what the score doesn't tell us, if, if you're just looking at the score of Salzburg to Bayern 6, is the fact that Salzburg were in that game for a really long time. And four of those goals come in, what, the last 13, 14 minutes? Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think we, we can we can talk about goal scoring in the, the, the pandemic, uh, post-pandemic and how the football's changed. And I, I think you're absolutely right to point that out. But I think with the Champions League, this goes further back because we're not just seeing a lot of goals. We're seeing a lot of thrashings. And you look at Mönchengladbach, you look at Atalanta losing 5-0 at home to Liverpool, which... You know, Atalanta have had their defensive challenges this season. They've conceded 13 in the first six games in Serie A, but you would not have picked that result before the start of play and you wouldn't have necessarily picked the ease with which Liverpool would would, would go to town on them as, as the match went on. But I think we're seeing more and more of this in the Champions League and I think it links into like big comebacks as as, as well. You know, what lead in a knockout tie, and I realise we're not there yet, but what lead in a knockout tie is safe in the Champions League anymore is there such a thing after um, obviously we, we go back and we think of Barcelona Paris Saint-Germain and then you think of Roma versus Barcelona Liverpool versus Barcelona more recently is there such thing as a watertight lead in a knockout match and I, I, I don't know if there is and what we're seeing is there's a similar abiding principle in the fact that a, but I think a lot of people will argue there are not so many elite defensive defences or d- elite defenders out there. But I tend to think it's more a result of the way teams play in the Champions League. They're far more susceptible to gamble than they are in the domestic leagues, for example, which I think is, is something separate. And I think when you have teams of, of roughly similar ability or at least ballpark similar ability that's something that you get there there was no sense with Atalanta of like right we're 2-0 down let's get a lid on this because they're not that sort of team that they want to feverishly try and get back in the game and at that point Liverpool have them exactly where they they want them them. I I think you look at you know you can look at Manchester United against Leipzig last last week and you know Manchester United end up winning that 5-0 and if you cut off the last 20 minutes of that game, that's never a 5-0. That's never a 5-0. But scoring early against Leipzig, is, it's the magic elixir, isn't it? Because then they've got to come out and have a go. They've got to do more with the ball, which they don't really want to do. And Julian Nagelsmann is trying to take them away from that. But really, it's, it's not their thing. And obviously, exactly what Manchester United want to do is pick you off on the counter. No, I'm just thinking, Lars, do, do you know that advert from back in the day? Um, Fries, Turkish delight. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think I was in England then. No, I mean, just, just saying that we have to talk about Manchester United at we some will, point. We will. You wanted to come back off what but Andy I, was saying there. Well, I just have, have two sort of, theory? for the gold glut in the Champions League, I have two sort of strokey beard theories uh, about why this is all going on. And, I, and I'm going to bring it a little bit back to the unique pandemic uh, 
situation first because I saw actually, you know, you see a lot of players who say, no, 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 it's just football, we get on with it. But it, but it isn't quite the same playing in empty stadiums all the time. It just isn't. And I saw a Norwegian player named Leo Östegård who's on the books at Brighton. He played for San Pauli last season. He's done a commentary now, I believe, articulate this very clearly. And I've not seen too many players say it out loud so I wanted to mention it because he said that the problem with playing in front of an empty stand is that you it does start to feel like a training session sometimes mm-hmm. it does start to see like a, feel like a friendly and and certainly for him as a you know big strong defender like sposhing into people he had a really good like connection with the San Paoli fans last season and really thrived off of that energy yeah. whereas now there's nothing to thrive off of and I think especially for defenders as a defender, your job is you've got to be switched on for 100% it's of the time. You've got to be switched on for 100% of the time. And I do think you are maybe a little bit more likely to have a few moments each game where your mind starts to wander or you lose focus by a few percentage points. And then, then, so, and then suddenly you get slightly bizarre uh, situations like the second Basaksa here goal where no one in on the United team has noticed that like Dembaba is sort of hanging around by himself. And you get these sort of and I think when you don't have the constant like there is a difference between doing your job in front of 13 you know, 30,000 people and doing your job in an empty room in terms yeah. of you know, like people keeping you on your toes and I, you don't have 30k saying man on yeah quite simply and I do think and I, and I think this is a bigger issue for defenders than for strikers yeah. for, for strikers so much of what strikers do is about trying sort of low probability uh, actions you know things that might come off they might not come off and then actually taking the weight off the shoulders of not having all these people watching you might help them actually uh, in terms of like pulling difficult stuff off, off I, I, I think. I, I think Lash is completely right because obviously when you're a defender, I don't need to tell you guys this, when you're a defender, if you switch off, if you're not concentrating uh, uh, and you, you, there's a mistake, then it costs your team. Whereas when you're a striker and you're switched off, and you're not concentrating as Manchester United strikers, Rashford, I can't remember who the second person was in one ball. You know, when you had Luke Shaw cross the ball, mm from mm, the Martial. left wing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was it Martial? Yeah. And they could have got to that ball, you know, yeah. and put it in the back of the net, but they were they lost concentration for a moment, but it didn't cost Man United. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, or, or, or you could argue it, it did. It does cost yeah. them, but yeah. it, it's, it, there's not such an immediate reparation, is there? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that's the thing. I, I also do wonder, you know, because we, we see the, the sixes and the fives on the score lines. I do wonder, with no people in the stands, if you're a little bit, quicker to capitulate you know to give up of course there were people uh, in the stands in in Ukraine weren't there but uh, I think it's easier for players to just losing this and instead of just if there are 40,000 people watching you there's some sort of professional pride that kicks in and you'll you'll boot someone in the air and you'll create a foul and you'll waste some time and you'll do something to get out of this without further humiliation but when there's no one there and it doesn't really matter if it's four or six you do wonder if if it's a little again the focus goes a little bit at least that is the exclu- excuse of uh, Dennis Dibush the uh, Ferenc Varos goalkeeper and he is sticking to it yeah I, that, I that mean some of the worst if, yeah if that was me I would have an excuse ready and stick to it because it sure looked like something else was going on there didn't it <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but also that was one strokey beard theory the other strokey beard theory which Andy just touched on I don't think a lot of these teams are good at defending I mean I think there's a sort of I guess he, you know, Jonathan Wilson's been on here a few times, hasn't he? Friend of the show, Jonathan Wilson. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, he's, he's written at least one column about it. I, I think there is, if you look at all these teams, 
their day-to-day life in their domestic leagues is all about attacking. I mean, most of these leagues we see, the teams we see in the Champions League are sort of near the, the pinnacle of their domestic uh, pyramids and their week-in, week-out experiences that they're sort of pillorying sort of random teams that they come up against. And, and when they then face other bigger teams in the Champions League, I just think a lot of them are just not used to defending. They're not used to... The Italians use the word suffering a lot often for this. And I think that that really works. That being under the cosh, you know, having to having to fight for your life a little bit defensively. There are a lot of these teams that just they don't spend a lot of time doing it throughout the season. This was the Kevin Keegan philosophy once upon a time. And you you know, Andy, because you know how to say Newcastle. And I do. His... As do you. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know. I just, I'm hearing the echo of your Newcastle <laughs> in case I said it otherwise. But, you know, you remember Kevin Keegan famous you know, uh, we don't care about defence. He didn't quite say that, but he said, you know, how many goals they score, we'll score more than them. And I just wonder if you could... It didn't work domestically for Kevin Keegan. It was great to see uh, Newcastle scoring loads and loads and loads and loads of goals, but it didn't work domestically for him. I wonder if it can work in the Champions League that you can win the Champions League with a poor defence, i.e. scoring more goals than the other lot have scored against you. I think no. I think no. I I think the way to the way to win titles is, is is sensible football, and particularly cup competitions. And you know, I think you can project that to World Cups, European Championships. You look at the way that World Cups and European Championships have been have been won in recent times. You know, I think you look at France twenty eighteen, Portugal twenty sixteen. Go all the way back to to Greece in two thousand and four. If if you want, um, clearly as as you've said, Dotton, it goes over the season and so maybe how you succeed in groups and how you succeed in knockouts is is, is quite different and I, I do think that's part of that but I do feel that any team that can defend properly has got an enormous advantage and I think it's quite interesting to see say the emergence of um, Thiago Silva at, at Chelsea since he's, he's he's got to form and obviously Edouard Mendy has been quite solid so far Chelsea have got three clean sheets in the Champions League so far. I can't think of any of those three performances which have made me think, wow, Chelsea are amazing. Or in fact, anywhere near that. But it gets you a long way, doesn't it? Lush? Yeah, and there's also, well... We can can read a lot into this. I mean, Dortmund kept a clean sheet this week. Brugger were quite tasty in that game. I mean, I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure how that. Yeah, no, this was like because I had uh, I obviously had the goal show open on one screen, Nandy, and I thought you did very well indeed. Oh, you very kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I had on my other screen that that was the game I had on, and it, yeah, Erling Holland scored two goals and had a good time. But yeah, Brugger were really good. <laughs> you yeah. kept watching it, and it didn't look like Dortmund were on top at all. But uh, but, but but they got and how so how they kept the clean sheet there? I'm, I'm not quite sure. I mean, we talk about big scores. I mean, that could have been like. I don't know, 3-3 three, three or 4-2 or like, I mean, that could have been even bigger. So, but, but I'm enjoying this sort of, the wild football. And I do think before, it feels like we often have this sort of annual debate on the group stage of the Champions League. Is it a waste of time? Blah, blah, blah. But well, I mean, if we're going to have it, at least let's have these sort of wild and crazy results. Anyway. Fun is not illegal. Having said all of that, it's still, kind of I, I think the performance. <laughs> well, yes, indeed. Thank you for reminding us that there's another kind of fun. But I, I think the performance of the last week in the Champions League was that 
18-year-old Dinamo Kiev goalkeeper, even though he let two goals in. For me, that was the most promising uh, performance. You know, some of the other performances we we, we expected, didn't we? We expected, um, well, we expect always that uh, Lewandowski is going to be there amongst the goal scorers, for example, and uh, other people as well. But in that Dinamo Kiev goalkeeper, this 18-year-old, in, what was it, his second pro- uh, professional match? Yeah, Ruslan Nesteret, who made his debut for the first team last weekend. That's uh, just incredible. Against the Pro. So this is less than a week ago, as we record. It, it, it's mad. And yet he showed the promise of a goalkeeper that's going to be around for a long, long time. He, he did. And what I thought was so interesting ab- about that is that the situation was quite a nice one for him, I think, because um, you, you look at Dinamo Kiev going to Camp Nou with their squad absolutely decimated by COVID, really down to the bare bones, which is why he's in there in the first place, because their first two goalkeepers were, were ruled out. But there was part of you when he conceded that penalty to, to Messi in like the fourth, fifth minute, where he thought this could be a long night, but... <laughs> At least you're going to get the opportunity to to prove yourself, you know. And what is a goalkeeper there to do apart from make saves? And he had that opportunity. But also, I think on the other side of it is Mark Andre Tushtegen, who's at the other end of the line of goalkeeping experience, playing his first game of the season. He had to have a really good game as well, mm-hmm. which should be a bit of an embarrassment to Barcelona, particularly given the situation. But I think there's an argument that. Barcelona's most important player, apart from Messi, is to Stegen, and that has been for a number of, of years now. Isn't that funny, isn't it? We're both talking about goalkeepers yeah. in this way, Lars, because yeah. they're invaluable in the Champions League, invaluable in any league, but in the Champions League, it seems they can dig you out of a hole. They they, they absolutely can, but you know, good strikers can also dig you out of a hole. And while we're kind of picking apart the Champions League round, I do want to, like, I have, I have a thing I want to throw at you. So if I read some names... And I'll ask you what they all duck. have in common. If you're going to throw them at me, I'm going to duck. Okay, right. So, <laughs> so, so, Carlos Tevez, Dimitar Berbatov, Radamel Falcao, Olivier Ooh, Giroud, George like Weah, Romelu Lukaku, Michael Owen, Diego Costa, and Christian Vieri. They all have one thing in common, and you might have seen this going around social media. All those strikers, they have one thing in common. Mm. And the thing they have in common is that Erling Haaland has now scored more Champions League goals <laughs> than all of them. I was thinking of I was thinking of this from my side yeah, rather than yeah, your yeah. side. That yeah, was my yeah, mistake. Yeah, yeah. In in eleven games, Erling Haaland has scored fourteen goals in the Champions League, uh, which is pretty mind boggling. Even allowing for the fact that he's played for for in Salzburg and Dortmund, two very attacking teams. Some of the opponents haven't been the best teams you'll face in the Champions League. It is a mind blowing stat all the same. Also, I mean, that there will. Never Never be more pleasing a sound from a scored goal than the, the, of his second goal against Paris Saint Germain. Yeah, the, in 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 the first leg of the, the the knockouts last season. That does remain one of my. There are a lot of you know my list of favourite things about Erling Haaland is not short at this point. But like one on near the top of it is the fact that he just loved just whacking the ball as hard as he can. Yeah. Like he can do a deft finish. You know, you see the odd chip, but he's someone who like if he if he can go with any finish, if he has to pick what finish. He will, he will go for, you know, trying to burst the net. And you don't see that uh, these days so quite so often from, from strikers. They're too yeah. cultured. Holland on that left foot. Oh, what about that? Oh, stupendous strike. That nearly took the net off. 
let's talk about Marseille. Um, where, who are Marseille now? It seems like every time you see them, it's not quite clear that this is the Marseille that were once the champions of Europe once upon a time. Yeah, they're definitely not that anymore. Um, I, I mean, they've they've equaled uh, a, a modern Champions League record in losing twelve successive. Champions League games equaling with Anderlecht and we know the challenges that that, that Belgian football's had um, but Marseille and Marseille Uh, and of of course this is not all down to André Villas-Boas but uh, as as he pointed out quite testily after the 3-0 defeat in in Porto on Tuesday well you know it started with Didier Deschamps don't look at me Um, which was which was a while ago now Um, but still for this to happen to a club of this size that's been out of the Champions League for seven years and last time they were in the group stage of the Champions League evidently because of the current run they lost all six games and that was in a, a tough group with a Dortmund who just got to the Champions League final, um, Arsenal and, and Napoli. But still, the the results have not been good and the performances have been absolutely dire mm-hmm. so far. And of course, there will be some people in France who say, well, they're a bit lucky to get second place. I'm not having that from last season because um, they had their challenges and Villas-Boas didn't have a lot of money to spend. They had some big players that they wanted to get off off the wage bill as well. And one of those, Dimitri Payet, ended up really clicking with AVB and having a, a very, very good season last season um, to the extent where Marcelo Bielsa was asking if he might like to come for, for one last dance at Leeds. <laughs> Not sure about that, but large. But I think the, the Marseille discussion for me... Uh, really raises a, a, an issue of what we consider to be a big club and what that means and how that yeah. uh, affects our expectation. Because I think anyone uh, with any sort of feel for European football and history of European football would have to say that Marseille classify as a big club, right? Because uh, of their history. You know, the Velodrome is a huge place. They get a great crowd there. And it is, I suppose, one of those big, big European cities where the fortunes of the team is really sort of you know, part of the vibe, you know, it's it, it matters. But, you know, modern football, I hate to be that guy, but modern football is, is a lot to do with money. And financially, they're not one of the elite, not even close. I mean, the sort of annual uh, Deloitte, the accountants, they look at the revenue of the various clubs and they make the sort of list of which clubs generate the, the highest revenue. They're, they're not in the top 30 in Europe. They're not in the top 30. Because they've and, not qualified for the Champions yeah, League and, for and, well, Yeah, and they haven't been since 2015. Yeah. And you, and not even Champions League. Yeah, you get teams like West Ham and Everton in the top 20, but, you know, Marseille are, are not there. So that that being out of the Champions League and being in a, in a domestic league where the television money isn't massive, that does restrict you so much in terms of the kind of players you can you can adapt and adapt uh, attract. And if you look around the Champions League teams, we see who have similar challenges, who are doing well. You can think of Ajax, obviously. Uh, you can think of even someone like Shakhtar. I mean, what we often have is a, a, a club with a, with a strong ownership and a very clear footballing identity. And, and I'm not sure Marseille really have that either. No, and I think you look at last season and Villas-Boas, there's no denying that he did a really good job, whether you're a fan of his or not, because no one could have reasonably expected them to qualify for the the, the Champions League last season. 
And then you add on to that the fact that on top of that team from last season, Florian Tovan, who was injured for all of last season, of course, he, he would have been coming back around March, but but then the, 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 the French season was, was brought to an end. So he just played a whisker of, of, of football last season. And when at the start of this campaign, you've got Payet and Tovan, you think, well, we're away here. You know, that's that's a real bonus. Without them really having the ability, as Lars said, to to go off and and, and buy anyone. Um, but firstly, you've got to find a way of getting two alphas, at least technically, to click in the same team, which I think has been problematic. Of course, in Payet's case, he's he's had COVID. He's had a suspension from when he got sent off in the in, in the game at Lyon as well, a game which he scored earlier on in. And with Payet, you do wonder, and there's been talk in France in recent days of like maybe, maybe the Champions League is just not a happy hunting ground for him because it's never really clipped for him in the Champions League. He's never scored a single Champions League goal, which is remarkable for a player of that ability and that stature. But I tend to think even if we, you know, obviously people will look at that and regard it as a jinx, especially the way he could have brought it back to 1-1 in Porto and he, he clubbed that penalty into the stars as they put it in Le Keep. And uh, it, it really was absolutely miles over the top. L'Etoile. L'Etoile in Le Keep. Exactly. Oh. And I, I think the, the biggest problem for them is the fact that they've still not managed to get what the locals call their Le Grand Attaquant. The, 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 the top level striker. And um, Dario Benedetto, who did okay after coming out over from South America this season, he's not looked fit. He's not looked engaged. He's not scored yet this season. And they were looking at going out and getting someone else in in, in the summer. They were looking at uh, Mamadou Nyang, who's been at Milan. He's at Rennes at the moment, not in the team. Um, but they've never had the money to, to, to make it happen. And the, the, that's the thing, isn't it? I think when you look you're sounding like Anders Vias Boyos now because you're <laughs> making excuses. Isn't the reality what Lars was saying? About Look, if, if you two. if you want to quote a- Andre Village Barsh at this juncture, <laughs> Dotton, who am I to stop you? No, 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 no. The only quote I remember from him from the performance at Porto was the word shit. Now, I'm not going to go there now. Do, because... do, you want, do you want me to do it? I'll do it. I'll, very I'll, good. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Um, in order to be shit in the Champions League, you have to at least qualify for the Champions League. We did it and we're being shit. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah, because yeah, I think this bringing up this sort of how many games they've lost in a row is slightly unfair when it was ages and ages ago, the other ones. Uh, come on. But, and also, if you look Your at team the team AVB, I yeah, love yeah, it. Of course, always, always. <laughs> team AVB and uh, if you look at the games they've lost you know, yeah you, the bad one I suppose is losing against Olympiacos because if you look at how the makeup of that group that is certainly not one you want to lose if you're Marseille but like losing away to Porto that that can happen losing to Manchester City when you're Marseille there's no shame in that so I'm not sure I'd like throw them completely under the bus yet but I think it was worth bearing in mind and I guess that's the subtext to what Viespos is saying I mean, they did overperform last year. Yes. And if you look at yes. the, if you look at the sort of, I know you may or may not be big fans of this, but if you look at the expected goals numbers and stuff like this, they underperformed, they overperformed massively mm. um, to the point where I saw one. I mean, the algorithms will differ from differing the stats companies, but I've seen one company suggesting that actually they should have been fifth mm. uh, in terms of the the number of you know expected goals before and against and how that would impact their results. And actually, the only other team 
on on the big leagues in the continent who overperformed by as big a margin was was Lazio, uh, another team who's oh, having a, uh, who's having another t- a bit of a regression maybe so far this season. Um, though of course they have other problems. Uh, my point being, I think the subtext of what Mar- uh, Villas-Boas is saying is that they've really done quite well to get there in the Champions League to begin with, uh, given the limitations they have and the challenges they have as a club, and 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 at least being there is going to bring some money into the coffers and maybe they can reinvest that into the team and and take them further in the future I I read that like he was doing um, a classic Greg Ruzetsky when Greg Ruzetsky was being interviewed uh, when he was still uh, you know on top of his game as a tennis player has been interviewed by a BBC commentator and saying well you know you just played shit and Greg Ruzetsky's retort was at least I made the cut where were you? <laughs> Where, at least I made the cut. But isn't the real issue, the one that Lars touched on a couple of questions back or a couple of comments back, that the reality is you can have what is an old-style notion of which teams are big clubs. Yes. Things have changed. You can't hang on to those things. Who cares if Stoke City was one of the first founders of the, you know, the football league in in, in in England? Things have moved on and Marseille ain't where they were. And, it, and whether it's about the money or otherwise, you can't regard a team that has lost a dozen matches in a row in the Champions League as a big club anymore. That's, it makes that's it the problem. ludicrous. That's, it makes it ludicrous. That's the problem, it? but it's a problem that's partly due to the current ownership because uh, Frank McCourt, who wasn't particularly liked by baseball fans in LA when he, <laughs> when he, when he left there, um, was someone who promised to invest and they talked about, and it was in English, the OM Champions Project <laughs> to, to, to get them in Europe, uh, in, in the Champions League consistently. This is the first time they've managed it. And of course, to herald their arrival in a blaze of glory, they went out and paid a lot of money by French standards, both in terms of transfer fee and in terms of contract for Dimitri Payet as their mm-hmm. arrival to bring this like um, guy who was thought of as um, part of, you know, harking back to a, a glorious time at the club, you know, a player from a Premier League club from the, who was doing really well in the Premier League to bring him back for like proper money was to say, look, we're serious. But the rest of the money just doesn't turn up. And mm. I, th- I think it goes back to what Lars was saying about, about the fact that Village Boas has overperformed because really he's just done stuff with the players who were there. That, that's proper coaching, really, mm-hmm. when you think about it. And some of the stuff he's done, like using Bubakar Kamara, who's uh, arguably going to be their best defender, young player, using him as defensive midfielder is something that really worked out, really gave the team balance. But it's not enough. I mean, if you're going to build on that season where you've overachieved, you've got to go out and, and and spend some money or at least be smart in the transfer market. Now, the biggest thing they did at the, the end of last season is appoint Paul Aldridge, who's someone who's well-known for selling clubs to Premier League teams. So straight away, this made Village Boas feel a little bit twitchy. There's this kind of acquiesce between him and the club. But of course, going back to Porto, his city, his main thing was, well, I'm going to be president here one day. And maybe his gaze is shifting as well if the club can't meet his ambitions. Avec une déviation de Casoni, à but! Dabedi Pelé! But Dabedi Pelé qui égalise. Alors ça, c'est un but surprise. 
après 23 minutes en première période, égalisation de l'Olympique de Marseille. Big game in the Bundesliga this Saturday. Why, why are we focusing on Dortmund versus Bayern, Lars? Well, I think that's a question that answers itself, really. I mean, it's the it's the Klassiker, uh, which I guess isn't a real. That's a bit sort of a corporate moniker. It's not. Uh, it's not an organic title, really. But no, it's it's a huge game, uh, obviously, because it's Bayern Munich facing their most uh, likely challenger. The the only, I mean, if we're being realistic, probably the only team that can stop them from winning the Bundesliga yet again. I think that's that's yeah. Without being too unfair to RB Leipzig, I guess I think that's a, I think that's a fair thing to to say. And I think what gives it a, a bit of an extra, a bit of an extra oomph is that it, it's still. We have this really strange situation with Lucien Favre where I think if you ask around, you'll find most people respect him as a coach and think he's a good guy and a good practitioner and, you know, a solid football man. But I also think you'll struggle to see, to find people who thinks he is the way and the truth and the light in the future for Borussia Dortmund beyond the season. So he is almost... So they're not at a point of crisis. It's not at a disaster, but he's still a bit of a lame duck, I think. For that reason, I would agree with that, Lars. This game is bigger for him than it is for Dortmund. Yeah, I would say. And and that's the thing for him to change that perception and to 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 make people believe that he can do it at this club. It's really important that they turn up for a big occasion against Bayern. I think. Yeah, and see, but Bayern aren't going to lose, are they? They're not going to lose this match. You've already suggested that they're running away with the Bundesliga. Uh, probably, you know, if all the predictions are accurate, they'll probably win the Champions League again. They're the best team in Europe by a mile. They are, but um, there are there are a few little issues, and um, I think. You look at the fact that as we start, they are level on points with Dortmund. We can't get away from that. They've both had a surprising defeat so far this season. Dortmund to Augsburg. Bayern at Hoffenheim. 4-1, for goodness sakes. 4-1 at Hoffenheim. And on a, on a personal personnel that level... That. that wasn't played. Well, I, I suppose Dortmund would say the same because those two goals against Augsburg, the only two Bundesliga goals they've conceded all season, which considering Dortmund have this reputation for having a flaky defence... And the fact that they've had injuries at the back. They've ended up playing Thomas Delaney there. They ended up playing Axel Witzel there, didn't they? Yes. In, the, in the Champions League Which the other night. Last. It, it is. Um, they've, they've done a pretty good job. And I, I think when you look at the players available, you have to at least partly hand that to the coach. But the problem for Dortmund, and we'll come to Bayern in a second, but the, the problem for Dortmund and the problem for Favre is that they've come up short in these games where they've made us believe and then they've disappointed us. Now, normally, those have been away from home. Like, all the times they've got whacked at the Allianz Arena. Fortunately for them, at least for this weekend, this is at Westfalen, Signal Laduna Park. Then, you look at the, the, the away games, the way they went out of the Champions League against Paris Saint-Germain last season, just completely wan, bloodless performance. You look at other away games, you look at... Um, the the Lazio one this season, which you felt the same thing was happening all over again. You know, maybe it's a, 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 a trick of modern perception because they're a team that don't press. When it doesn't go well for them, you think 
where's the intensity? Where's the effort? It's not Favre's thing to to press. And you might say that's counterintuitive given some of the players that are at his disposal. Maybe that would work a, a little bit better. Um, but you look at the team that Dortmund picked for that game at Brugelaars. They know how big this is already. You know, they left out Bellingham. They left out Sancho. You know, the, there were lots of key players out, obviously some not all by choice. But they're, they're in no doubt about how huge this is. Yeah, though, though it is it is quite something that we got to the point where you say, well, they, they, they rested... Uh, seven-year-old Jude Bellingham, so he would be fresh for the <laughs> for the Bayern game, and we, oh yeah, oh so bad, we had to play Julian Brandt instead. Like, I mean, they've got a bit of depth going yeah, forward. They do. They do. Uh, but but it is true. I think Bellingham is first choice now. He's had such an extraordinary impact there. Um, but but yeah, it is. It, it definitely is interesting there because I, I think one of the last times I was in here, we were we were talking about Dortmund again, and I was going to make—I don't think I ever got to it—but I was going to make this sort of cutting remark about how you know what, if like Emre Can and Kanji are two of your first choice centre halves, you're not going to win the Bundesliga. Uh, but then again, we've 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 gotten a few games into it now, and as I said, they've had a ton of injury problems, and they've only conceded two in the first six. So so maybe actually that defence isn't quite as bad as as I think it is. I and, don't know. and the bonus is that. I think from the Dortmund perspective, you look at how they do get put in trouble. I guess Bayern are one of the least likely teams to just hammer it over the top towards yeah. Lewandowski, which is yeah, one which of is the situations. Like old man Hummels is not a big fan of those sort of situations. Yeah. But they look at a tiny bit vulnerable in those situations. You think one of those two goals was them getting caught out on one of those straight balls by equally no spring chicken Daniel Caligiuri who always scores against them of course for Schalke and has continued to do it for, for, for Augsburg but if we're talking about defenders look Dotton we have to talk about David Alaba uh, I wrote about him for the, the Guardian earlier this week and it's been the main breaking story on Bayern as you say there's this sort of sea of tranquility where they're bobbing along which is quite unusual for a club as combustible as as, as Bayern in, in so many ways but the president of Bayern, Herbert Heiner, came across last um, Sunday and said, well, look, we've been talking with Alaba. Um, we, we made her offer. Um, they've said it's not good enough. We want to move on. It's off the table. And David Alaba talked about it this that? week. Do you believe uh, that it is off the table? Or no. if, if, if it came back, I, yeah, no, I think if, if if Alaba's agent said, "Ah, well, you know, we'll take that off for you," they wouldn't say, "No, no, 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 <laughs> we're not signing now." If, I mean, I don't if, think that's what they're doing. If Pini Jahavi said, "Come back, we'll do you a discount," <laughs> mm-hmm. which I'm sure is likely, um, I, I think this this is an issue for them, uh, not just in terms of of harmony. And David Alaba has talked this week about saying some of the numbers that have been leaked out there are are not true and um you know I'm 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 still I'm still a Bayern player I love being here um I, I'm I'm not I've not spoken to any other club there's no need for him to speak to any other club he knows they're all interested anyway <laughs> and why wouldn't they be he's under 30 he's been the one of the best left backs in the world for a very long time he's now one of the best center backs in the world and he knows how valuable he is to them on and off the pitch you know, we, we've talked about how he's the the loudest player in the Bayern team, about how he's that leader on the pitch, about how he's really coached Alfonso Davies into that position of being one of the best left-backs in the world already. He's been phenomenal in this year under Hansi Flick. 
And I have heard this theory that, well, if Alaba does go, it's no big deal because they've already got uh, Luca Hernandez, uh, their, their club record signing who they bought last summer because he's left-footed and can play centre-back and left-back. But come on. I mean, Hernandez is a very good player. He is, as Karl-Heinz Rummenigge described him, a warrior. He's nowhere near as comfy on the ball as, as, as Alaba. He's not terrible on the ball, but he's come from Atletico Madrid. Whereas Alaba has played for Bayern for a very long time. And he's played almost in every outfield position for Austria. So it's difficult to think of a, a defender who's more comfortable on the ball. Can Hernandez do that? No. Is he trustworthy injury-wise? Jury out. Yeah. Well, okay, so you made the case for... Uh... Just show him the money, I think, uh, which is an easy case to make, really. In the show, case of show Dav- him the bonuses, yeah. Let's call in, it. in David Alaba's case, just because he's very versatile, like you said, and j- just having a center half who's reliable defensively, who's also pacey and good on the ball and left footed like there's a, there's a lot of very long list of players at that level who can do all those things. He's quite unique in, in that regard. Uh, I would like to, I can just play devil's advocate for a moment and say that. Bayern, they're they're not wrong when they bring out the arguments about how we've lost a ton of money because of the pandemic and we need to look at things now. And and he is asking for an awful lot of money. A lot of uh, people, David, in, a lot of people in Germany agree with you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, David and and David Alba is asking for a lot of money. And there is the other point here, which is you got to manage your wage budget a little bit. You got to be a little bit careful with this. And and David Alaba can can rightly claim I'm one of the most important players in this team. I should have one of the bigger contracts and that's fair enough but the thing is once you start uh, you know you have you have a lot of quite important players there and once you start handing out sort of 20 million a year type contracts suddenly your entire squad is on 20 million a year and you It's bar- the Barcelona theory so, isn't it? Against, suddenly yeah. your Barcelona is the punchline we're going towards and and once you're there you have a problem and and it, it, as we saw with Barcelona this summer when they tried to offload some of these dudes it's simply really hard to get rid of them suddenly mm-hmm. so I think Bayern by Munich are not entirely unjustified in just looking at the numbers here and thinking we need to stay on top of this before it spirals out of control So Bayern Munich the one team in Europe who wouldn't want to be Barcelona <laughs> <laughs> So it comes the, to the time, the, my favourite time actually, when you reckon... It is not my favourite time because it means the episode is almost <laughs> over, which is very sad. And it means oh. I have to leave you guys and, you know, go back to everyday life. I thought well, you were going to say it's not your favourite moment because as amazing as you are on the show, you always forget to pick a game of the week. <laughs> It is the game of the week point. And if you were a Nigerian (laughs) fan, what would you be saying? All we are asking is recommend a game (laughs) that will give us a goal. I think that would be a very interesting chance. (laughs) I I think think we're asking for clean sheets at this point, aren't we, after the week we've had? No, no, we want goals. What's your game of the week then, Lush? Well, I, I, you know, I think I have the right, I have just the thing for you, my friend. Thank you. Uh, on, On Sunday... I mean, we've spoken enough about the Classic Era, so I'm not going to... That's obvious. If you have any interest in European football, make an effort to watch uh, Bayern and Dortmund this weekend. That is a given. But I think on Sunday, uh, 
on Sunday at two o'clock uh, British uh, time, we've got Atalanta versus Inter in Serie A, and I think this is really interesting. Not just from the perspective of you should really always watch Atalanta. I think at this point, if if you have the if you have the time in your diary and Atalanta are playing and you like football and you're not watching them, what are you doing with your life? You're just doing it completely wrong. Uh, <laughs> they're so much fun. Uh, even if I mean, if we saw against Liverpool, they have a sort of shellacking against in them, but then that's also fun to watch. So you know, just you know, watch watch Atalanta. They're great. Um, they're playing Inter here now, which is in. Which is great, just just from from the perspective of it being Atalanta, but also Inter. Inter have dropped a few points already this season, and I think just when you look at the team they've put together for Antonio Conte, uh, who's been very vocal in his demands for players as he always is, they've obliged them. They've signed a lot of guys. They've signed a lot of old dudes. Uh, they're not building a team from for five years in the future. They're not even building a team for next year. They're building a team for right now. But they've already dropped a few points this season. Um, might not matter, but you know. AC Milan are five points ahead of them, and, and six games in—that's that's not completely insignificant. So, so they can't drop too many points. Or going away to Atalanta, so it's a bit gnarly. So, I think this could be a really interesting game between a, an away side, a, a Conte Inter side that, that really does need to win this game, and an Atalanta team that that's always fun to watch. So, you know, Atalanta Inter, check it out. Yeah, what are you doing with your life, Andy, this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> looking for clean sheets Don this is what I feared what but, but you're going to have to look hard mate but not at Camp No uh, my game of the week is uh, Barcelona versus Betis and of course part of this as we mentioned in the ramble earlier this week is because of the Ronald Koeman Joaquin beef because uh, Joaquin um, the 39 year old winger um, 39 going on 21 year old winger of um, Betis who played under Koeman at Valencia in his shambolic spell there was interviewed this week and he, he was asked um, would, you, would you have uh, Koeman as a coach for Betis and he said oh, I wouldn't even have him as the kit man <laughs> and he, he, he said uh, we will um when we say see each other at the weekend, he will not say hello to me and I will not say hello to him. And thank goodness <laughs> it ended quickly and we avoided relegation. Now, that's not the greatest testimonial, but I think there's a sense, and particularly after that Barcelona, Dinamo Kiev game that we were talking about, that Barca are still vulnerable and um, that they're a little bit stretched in terms of defence. Betis are playing some pleasing football under Manuel Pellegrini. Tony Sanabria is looking the real deal again. Um, you've got Fekir. You've got the aforementioned Joaquin. You've got that bit of beef. And you said before, who would not want to be Barcelona apart from Bayern Munich? Well, of course, when we're thinking of Barcelona in the current fettle they're in, it reminds me of something that Jorge Jesus, the Benfica coach, said last week when... Uh, his his team were compared to Barcelona. They were, and, and he said, "Well, don't compare us to current Barcelona. I'm not having that. You can't compare Benfica to current Barcelona. We're better than them. If you want to compare us to to Pep Guardiola Barcelona, I'll take that. But not current. No, thank you very much. So this is the moment." where Barcelona can begin to turn it around or you, not. You might get your clean sheet if Griezmann's playing. <laughs> Shocking miss in the Champions League is all I'll say.
This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network. 